Let me invite you to join me by turning in your Bibles to Exodus chapters 35 to 40. Now before anyone panics, I'm not going to read all six chapters in their entirety uh, this morning. We have already seen that chapters 35 to 40 are almost a mirror image of what you have in chapters 26 to 31 with very few exceptions. Uh, In the first section, you have the instructions for the tabernacle. And then in chapters 35 to 40, our passage for today, you have the construction of the tabernacle. And we might wonder to ourselves, well, why not just say, and they built the tabernacle and be done with it? They did what God told them. Why not just leave it at that Well, that seems to be part of the point here. Nowhere else in all of your Bible would you find such an extended portion of Scripture repeated in such minute detail. And there's a lesson here. In fact, there's a number of lessons in the repetition. And so I want to survey a few things we can learn from this. And then we're going to jump over to chapter 40 and take a closer look there. First, we see the wonders of God's grace. In chapters 35 to 40, the wonders of God's grace. Friends, it's a miracle that the tabernacle ever gets off the ground. It's a miracle that these, passage, that these chapters exist, that they do is a testament to the working of God's grace in the lives of his people. It's a testament to the truth of what we saw uh, last week in Exodus chapter 34, that the Lord is indeed a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The wonders of God's grace are written all over these chapters. When you think about the depth to which Israel had plummeted, the extent to which this people had so plunged headlong into sin, and then you take into consideration the fact that that was not all she wrote for this nation, that that was not the end of the story when it came to the Lord's presence with his people. What can you do but give glory to the God of grace? The glory, give glory to the one who is so patient, who's so long-suffering with his people. If it hadn't have been for the mercy of God and the, the aboundingness of his grace toward Israel, you wouldn't have ever had anything more than just blueprints, just drawings for the tabernacle. But that's not what you have. You have our great redeeming God and all of his persevering love, not overlooking the sin of his people, but disciplining them, testing them, calling them back to himself, and then using them. Using them for his own glory. And I trust that you can see the same pattern in your life. If you are in Christ Jesus that you are not in this room today, that you are not where you are in life because of your great faithfulness to the Lord, but because of his graciousness to you. 
Your very existence is a testament to the wonders of God's grace. Chapter 35 starts out very purposefully with the priority of worship. If you look at verses one and three, one, two, and three, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Beloved, what does a recently restored people need to have resounding in their ears? What do they need to have first impressed upon their hearts? The priority of worship. The priority of the right worship of the only true God over against all other things. That has to be settled in their hearts and minds first. That means that God takes first place in all that we do in all that we say, in all that we are. In verses one to three, you see that the worship of God takes precedence over our time. God has forgiven Israel of their idolatry, but now it's important that they learn to establish a day of worship and of rest. However good all of the other work on the other six days of their week was, God deserved a day of worship. The people needed to institute a day of rest and God had certainly called them to a holy task. It was a good work that they had called them to in the building of the tabernacle. But it mustn't supersede the worship of God. The same is true in our lives. God has called us to work. That's a good thing. That's an honorable thing. Remember that work is found in the scripture before the fall, before sin enters the world, you find work. But work must not supersede the worship of God. God is to take his rightful place. It's no accident that the Sabbath turns up first here to a newly reconciled people. It's not incidental that the priority of worship is what we find rising to the top after they are restored to the Lord, that before the work begins, God reminds them that in the everyday rhythm of their lives, they should have a whole day set apart, holy unto the Lord. Holy unto the Lord. Isaiah 58 and verse 13 says this, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Call the Sabbath a delight. And when you do so, what does God say? Then you shall take delight in the Lord. This is no drudgery. Call the Sabbath a delight and then you will find where true joy is found. Then you will discover where true satisfaction is to be had. It's in knowing God 
It's in living and walking with him and worshiping him and him alone. And so that instinctual response we saw in Moses last week to the presence and the mercy and the grace of God, you remember how he, he, he immediately bowed down and worshiped him, worshiped the Lord. That impulse to worship God must go on to be the response of God's people, not just as some kind of short-lived moment of penitence, but as a way of life, as a very way of life. Now, if you look at verses four to nine in chapter 35, you find that the worship of God takes precedence over our money and our possessions. It brings our resources and our talents and our skills into the service of his name. Now here I want you to see the wholeheartedness of the people's devotion to God. You remember how Moses issues that call for contributions to the sanctuary. And what do we discover here? Enthusiasm, joy. Look at verse 25. Every skillful woman spun her hand, with her hands and they all brought what they had, and spun, had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair and the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. You see, brothers and sisters, it wasn't just that they set their hands to the task. Their hearts were wrapped up in the whole affair. Their hearts were wrapped up in the whole enterprise to the point that they had to be restrained from bringing anything more. When's the last time you heard a pastor come before you and say, listen, church, there's something I need to bring to your attention. I need to make an appeal to you today that you stop bringing anything more we have all that we can take. You've, you've seen those giving thermometers on, on building campaigns. The tabernacle thermometer had blown out the top. They had all that they needed and more. The emphasis here, though, isn't so much on the abundance of the offering, but on the attitude of their hearts. The former is just the outworking of the latter. This passage was not preserved because the coffers were full, but because the hearts of God's people were full. They were full of gratitude and love and devotion. It's what 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says about the generosity of the churches in Macedonia, that they gave first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You see, their, their hearts were given in a Godward direction first, and then they gave by the will of God on, on the, the horizontal plane, on the lateral plane, where there, there was a need. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so look what you have, just as you scan through this chapter in verse 21, they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him. Verse 22, all who were of a willing heart 
brought brooches and earrings and so on. Chapter 36, verse 3, they still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning. These aren't prescribed offerings. They're not mandated offerings. They're free will offerings the people are bringing. And you see the focus. You see that the focus is on the spirit and on the will, on the heart. It speaks of their affections, their motivation, the inclination of the heart. It's wholehearted. It's willing It is undeniably the work of God. You cannot manufacture this kind of thing on your own. You cannot work up this sort of spirit in your own life. But you know what, brothers and sisters? You can gaze upon the God of Exodus 34. You can gaze upon the God who is gracious, who has sent his son into the world to bring sinners from death to life. You can gaze upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You can bow down before him, worship him, serve him, love him. Then you will know something of what you see here in this passage. That's where this kind of joy and enthusiasm is found in knowing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you know it? Do you know him? Have you gazed upon him? It's in Christ we discover grace upon grace, all the glory of God revealed. Only in the personal knowledge of Jesus Christ will you discover this kind of joy. What a turning this is for Israel. In chapter 32, uh, you'll remember how they brought their gold and their their silver and they devoted it to the worship of a foreign god. They used their jewelry and they fashioned for themselves an idol. They bowed down and they served the creature rather than the creator. It's what we have all done in various ways in our sin and our, our unbelief. Here though, they join with the apostle Paul, so to speak, and they say, no, Yahweh alone is blessed forever, amen. They come to understand at once their own sinfulness, but also the supremacy and the glory and the graciousness of God. And what happens? Doxology inevitably rises up from within their hearts. They cannot help but worship. Instead of taking those things that uh, they had used and uh, devoted to, to false worship, they begin to reappropriate them. They give them over to the service of the Lord. They don't give them to vain worship. They don't give them to the indulgence of the flesh. They give them to the Lord. And you can see that take expression in all kinds of ways. In their time, their resources, the skills that God had put within them, their possessions, their finances, nothing is left untouched. They're new people. God's done a work in them. They've gone from idolatrous, fearful, self-indulgent, unbelieving people. Now they're joyful. They're devoted. They're generous. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How is the grace of God changing you? How is the knowledge of Christ's grace transforming your life today? 
Do you see devotion to the things of God being increasingly cultivated within your life? As you come to discover more of the light of God's glory and grace, do you see him changing you? With all of the building materials in place, the the construction can now commence. You see that in chapters 36 and verse 8 through chapter 39 and verse 32. This is the, the actual construction of the tabernacle. Now, again, we're not going to read all of this, but what is the overarching theme? Surprisingly enough, It is the completeness of the people's obedience that you see in these chapters. Between chapter 39 and 40, the Bible tells us no less than 17 times that Israel did everything just as the Lord had commanded them. By the grace of God, they follow the command of God down to the very letter. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Take the priestly garments, for example. Do you remember with what detail those were spelled out? A bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. All this they did as the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 39, verse 26. If you jump over to chapter 39 and verse 42, It says, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Nothing was overlooked, nothing's forgotten, nothing was left halfway done. Astonishingly, there's nothing to quibble about. There's nothing to criticize. How often can that be said of God's people? How often do we pay attention to God's voice with with such careful heed, with, with such careful concern, such rigor and eager desire to leave nothing undone, to give heart and soul and mind and strength to his revealed will? Would that God give us such Uh, careful, thoroughgoing attendance to the will of God as he has revealed it in his word today. We don't have a, a physical temple, do we, that we are setting out to build. We're not collecting goat's hair and ram skins and acacia wood, but friends, we have something that we are set about. We have something better, something that is enduring, something that is far more glorious. First Peter chapter two says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Beloved, you are being built up as a spiritual house. Church, give your attention there. 
Pour your energy, your resources, your devotion, and your obedience to that glorious, divinely purposed enterprise. We have our marching orders. The blueprints have been given for us. We know what kind of house the Lord desires. We know what it's to be characterized by. A house marked by holiness and faith, by purity and by love. A spiritual house marked by submission to Christ our King. You know, it's very easy to look at the legacy that the nation of Israel left behind and shake our heads and wag our fingers to think to ourselves, how could they be so foolish? What stubborn, forgetful people they were, and they were, to be sure, many times, although we would do much better if we considered the ways we're like them, instead of shaking our our heads at them. But there were bright spots too, and this is one of them. It's one they should be commended for and emulated in. By God's grace, they were found faithful, and there is grace enough today for each one of us that it might be said, and they did everything just as the Lord commanded them. There is grace for us to walk in his ways. You have not been left ill-equipped to walk in obedience to the grace or to the commandments of God. Grace is available today in the personal work of Jesus Christ. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. You can be at church every Sunday. You can read your Bible every day of the week. You can listen to sermons and podcasts all day long. You, you can, in fact, take great delight in hearing and knowing and memorizing the word of God, but that alone is insufficient knowledge that you belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus said this, shocking words to some, you are my friends if you do what I command you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Obedience is not the way that we come into right standing with the Lord. It is not, emphatically, not the way that we gain favor with the Lord or earn eternal life or anything of the sort, but it is evidence of his grace. It is evidence that Christ is alive in us, that we are new creations. And so we come to chapter 40. Now I would like to read this chapter. And then we'll concentrate the remainder of our time on just the last several verses. This is after the completion of the tabernacle. It's all been finished. Listen to Exodus chapter 40, beginning verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony and you shall screen the ark with the veil and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting 
and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations." This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark, and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, and set up the veil of the screen, and screened the ark of the testimony, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting, on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses." He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their, their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." 
Well, alas, we reach the climax of this book. From verses 1 and then 17, we can deduce that Israel has now been at Mount Sinai somewhere between 9 and 10 months. Chapter 19 tells us that Israel arrives at Sinai on the third new moon after they had gone out of the land of Egypt. That means that their first Passover uh, back in Egypt was at this point about a year or so removed. Now it's just a few days away from them. The tabernacle has been constructed, the tent is erected, and immediately the cloud covers the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh fills the tabernacle. One author says it's as though the Lord can't wait to come and live with his people. This has been almost a year in the making and now it's as if God can't wait to make good on that promise that he had spoken to his people. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, that I may dwell in the midst of my people. Now there's two things that I wanna call your attention to in these last few verses. First is the problem of Yahweh's presence. The problem of Yahweh's presence. We are at the very height of the story when something surprising, something unexpected happens. Moses isn't able to enter the tent of meeting. We think to ourselves, well, wait, what? This is not what we had anticipated. This is not what we had hoped for. We have spent 40 chapters waiting to get there, and now this, Moses can't go in. Why is that? Look at verse 35. It gives us the reason. It says that it was because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The intensity of the presence of God was such that Moses is unable to go in. He simply cannot go in where God's presence is abiding, which hints at a problem that we see running right through the unfolding revelation of God's redemptive plan. The problem is this. While the Lord has come to dwell in the midst of his people, there still remains a necessary degree of separation. This is the problem. This is the paradox of his presence dwelling in the midst of his people. And verse 35 puts that in bold. It says that while God is near, he's also unapproachable. He dwells with his people, but he's also holy. He is close, but he's also dangerous. And this is something that Israel will at times in their future go on to forget. But God comes to condescend and you see that there is nothing casual about this. Not even Moses can go in. And that's the problem of his presence. Now, if you will just turn the page into the opening verses of the book of Leviticus, you'll see the very next words of the canon deal with laws for burnt offerings. It's as if the text supplies the resolution to the problem of Exodus 40. Why can't Moses go in? Israel needs a sacrifice. There needs to be a sacrifice for sin, and this is where the answer to the problem is found. 
The first several chapters of, of, of Leviticus spell out uh, the nature of the sacrificial system and the kinds of sacrifices that are to be brought before the Lord. Eventually you get to Leviticus chapter 9 and verse 22 and it says that Aaron came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering and listen to this and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they came out they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. It was when the sin offering had been offered that Moses and Aaron could go in before the presence of the Lord and the blessing flowed to the people of God. How do God's people come to experience the glory of God? It is through sacrifice. It's through sacrifice for sin. Provision has to be made. Before we can approach the living God, there must be provision for sin. Now, where's our provision to be found? It's not through the blood of bulls and goats. It's through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's through his precious blood. He is the only way that can take away sin. It's his death, burial, and resurrection that is the, the pivotal moment. It is the crowning achievement on God's redemptive plan because he tore down the veil. Jesus Christ is the one that removed that separation. Peter says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in him in whom this, this good news of reconciliation and fellowship and nearness with the Father can be found. It's something that will be brought to its final consummation when Christ returns. Jesus Christ is going to come again. I'm going to read to you a passage from the book of Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel chapter 37, starting in verse 23. It says, They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their, the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them. That's talking about Jesus there, the one who sits on David's throne. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God will dwell with his people, the prophet says, forevermore, unhindered by sin and corruption and decay. Secondly, we see the persistence 
of God's presence. The text says that throughout all their journeys, there was one constant. There was one thing that could be depended upon, which was that God was in their midst. God was with them. The God who had shown himself to Moses on the mountain was now down in the camp and he was dwelling with his people. He was there to lead them. He was there to guide them. Whenever God moved, the people moved. If he didn't move, they didn't move. On all of their journeys, he was with them. It would be a journey that would be marked by testing and trial. It was a journey where their course was not charted out ahead of time. They did not know where they were going. It required them to walk by faith. But God was at the helm and they were at his command. Well, this church is our paradigm. This is the same pattern for the people of God today. We cannot go where God does not lead us. You remember what James says. We can't say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and buy or sell or trade and and make a profit. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Where he leads, we will follow. Here lies the path of blessing and of reward. Here in the will of God, under the shadow of his presence is every good thing. Following after him. Church, I want you to see here that salvation, uh, redemption, is but the beginning of a life lived in the presence of God. Salvation, far from being some kind of spiritual punch card, is the beginning of a whole spiritual pilgrimage. It calls for endurance. It requires that we keep our eyes set on Christ, that we follow him every single day of our life. We have not yet reached our final destination, but we have a faithful God. We have a faithful God who is going before us. He's going with us. The last verse of the chapter says that the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys and all their travels. God was there. Moses describes those travels as a great and terrifying wilderness. But brothers and sisters, God was there in that great and terrifying wilderness where there's so many unknowns, God was with them. God was there. This is what the psalmist marvels at in Psalm 139. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, 
for darkness is as light with you. Perhaps it would do your soul good today to say, if I, and then supply your present day circumstances. The situation you find yourself in today, and then finish the sentence. Even there, your hand shall lead me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Lord, we would never choose the path that we find ourselves on so many times and, let you, and, and yet you are right and you are good. Lord, we thank you for your mercy toward us. Father, we thank you that because you do not change, we are not consumed. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the true and better Moses, the prophet that is better than Moses, our great high priest, the one who always lives to make intercession for us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, that he is with us at all times, that he illuminates the word, that he leads us into the truth. Father, I pray that you would teach us to walk in faith and obedience that you'd give us a hunger for your word, that you'd give us a desire to follow hard after Christ. Lord, that indeed it would be said of us that we did just as Christ has commanded us by your grace and to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.